What does a just and equitable transition from fossil fuels look like? Climate One Conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Our country's dependence on fossil fuels has led to climate disruption and inequality. Underserved communities are the ones most harmed by pollution, lack of green space, and heat-related illness. Transitioning to clean energy would seem to be the obvious answer, but are the privileged getting helped first and most? We have to make sure that we're thinking about the jobs and the industries that we're creating, make sure that they are sustainable and green and not gray, not killing people. We have to make sure that we're creating a workforce pipeline to prepare people for those jobs. And we have to make sure that we're treating people differently in this transition as well. Former state Senator Kevin DeLeon says that in California, they're already on it. To date, we have created 500,000 jobs in the clean energy space. That is 10 times more jobs in the clean energy space in California than there are coal mining jobs in all of America. Today, we'll talk about what constitutes a just transition away from fossil fuels with three climate justice leaders. Kevin DeLeon is former president of the California State Senate and currently a candidate for the Los Angeles City Council. Daryl Molina Sarmiento is executive director of Communities for a Better Environment, an advocacy group based in Los Angeles. And Vien Trong is former director of Green for All and senior advisor for climate justice on Tom Steyer's presidential campaign. Today's program was made possible with generous support by Chris Olin and Regan Pritzker of the Chrysalis Fund. Vien Trong's fight for climate justice began early. Her parents fled Vietnam during the boat people migration and she was born in a refugee camp, later making her way to the United States along with her family. When we got here, we went to work on farmlands in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, where we picked strawberries and snow peas. My mom would strap me to her back. When my start grandma started getting dementia, we moved to Oakland, California, so that we had family members who can watch her when they were at work. And my parents, who never spoke English, the only jobs they could find in Oakland was in sweatshops. We would call them garment factories. And they would work from morning to night, um, 25 cents a shirt. That's what they did from the time I was three until the time I went to college. And this was growing up in Oakland, California during the 80s. It was um, the crack years, as they would be called now. I saw my first murder when I was eight. And growing up in these conditions, now when I think about a just transition for the country, I think about people who grew up on farmlands, farmers and farm workers. I think about people who live in uh, communities that are blighted, underserved, and neglected for generations. I think about the lack of resources for people who are in low-wage, low-road jobs, and how do we help make sure that we are transitioning them so that no one is left behind, no worker is left behind, and that we can actually create a high-roads, high-dignity, um, sustainable future for all. What a story. I'm moved by that story. I've heard it several times. I'm still, still moved by your story, Vim. Um, Daryl Molina Sarmiento, you were 18 years old, and you went on a toxic tour mm -hmm. in southeast Los Angeles, a poor part of Los Angeles. Tell us how that kind of pointed you in the direction you're going now. Sure. Hi, everyone. I participated in my first Communities for a Better Environment toxic tour when I was a student in college. And we toured Southeast Los Angeles and saw some of the most toxic polluters in the country. And that is when I realized that what's happening in Southeast Los Angeles 
and what's happening all across the United States is really similar to what's happening where my family is from in the Philippines. And so making those global connections to what's happening in Southeast LA to my own personal background and history is what really brought me to do this work and to do it with Communities for a Better Environment. And so I started off as our youth program coordinator, and that is where I worked with our youth members to push back against the construction of a 943 megawatt power plant in Southeast Los Angeles, less than a mile from hundreds of homes and schools. And, um, and then I became our Southern California program director soon after that, and eventually, 14 years later, I'm here as our executive director, the first woman of color in the organization's history that started off you know, f from 18 years old as a, as a participant in our toxic tour. So I feel really privileged to be able to be here and do this work. Fabulous. Kevin DeLeon, you had a very, you're not a traditional environmentalist. You said that when you became president of the California State Senate, you didn't call Tom Steyer or the head of Sierra Club. You had a very different background than that traditional environmentalist. Tell, tell us how you, environmentalism got into your, your priorities in your life. Uh, thanks, uh, first and foremost, uh, Greg, and to each and every one of you. Um, I grew up uh, uh, in uh, Tijuana, in San Diego, on both sides of the border. Uh, youngest child, uh, single immigrant mother, uh, third grade education. Uh, my mother had the courage of her conviction uh, to cross a border to seek a better life uh, for for myself and for my, my two sisters. Um, my mother was a housekeeper, so she cleaned homes in a very wealthy enclave in San Diego called La Jolla, mm -hmm. uh, California. Uh, the large you know, mansions on top of the hill with the ocean panoramic views. And it was there that I learned the value of hard work. And my mother's very strong work ethic, but at the same time, uh, the ability, even at a very young age, sort of to contrast between the haves and have-nots. Uh, uh, beautiful open space, um, beautiful uh, green grass, um, uh, trees for canopy, for shade, uh, beaches. And where I grew up in a neighborhood called Logan Heights, it was cement and concrete and asphalt and a dearth of trees, so there's no trees uh, for shade. Um, and you know, growing up and being able to sort of critically analyze a, a little better um, why this was the case. Obviously, politicians, elected officials at the local, state, federal level, uh, planning commissioners. Uh, um, and and it's very same with, with Daryl and, and with, with Vien too, made certain decisions. You know, we're going to put junkyards here or, you know, chrome plating facility plants there. And we're not going to build parks here. And we're going to build parks, you know, in these other communities and bike paths and uh, uh, trails for walking. So obviously, it, it, for me, it became a, a, a human and civil rights issue. And I think that's what sort of uh, uh, gave me that passion when given an opportunity to be in a position uh, with a, a vast amount of political power and try to bring about equitable you know, uh, justice uh, in, in the greatest state in the country, California. Vien Trung, the environmental movement and civil rights movements have often looked warily at each other. There hasn't been a close relationship, and there's a lot of been sort of distance there, and thinking, well, you don't care about our issues, you don't care about our issues. How has that evolved, and where does that stand now between the sort of environmentalism and civil rights? Well, I think it's understandable, historically, when you look at the growth of civil rights. You're looking at people who were suffering from Jim Crow, suffering from the lack of ability to vote, not recognized as human beings, being... Um, physically and um, politically harmed daily, right, and eminently. 
And then the environmental movement was growing out of the conservation movement, going into regulations and talking about toxins, which you can't really see. And it's hard to feel eminent, right? And so when they're arguing each other about what was more important, it began an argument about values and rights and whose issues should be more prominent in the mainstream. There is no, now what we know is there should be no winner in that conversation because both are losers, right? And there should be no oppression Olympics about whose issues matter more. And in fact, now we're beginning to see that. We're beginning to see the interconnected issues of poverty and pollution. We know that people who are suffering first and worst from climate change are the people who live at the front lines, are people who grew up in Oakland or Appalachia, people who are growing up in Detroit and in um, communities that are being flooded in Texas. We now know that across the board, we are being impacted first and worst in communities that are underserved and historically been the areas that have been the siting grounds for polluters who thinks that people of color are the, um, and communities of color are where they should put polluting facilities because they don't have political voice, because they won't push back, or because the politicians aren't listening to them. And now what we know as the environmental movement and the civil rights movement become um, more united and become kind of more in conversation with each other, we know that we have to work together if we're going to push back against these large corporate powers and big polluters. So it's a good thing. We're moving in the right direction. There was an interesting story in the New York Times about the NAACP distancing themselves from, from some of the energy companies that have spread money around to try to get those communities uh, uh, on their side. Uh, Daryl uh, Molina Sarmiento, there are actually cases where civil rights laws have actually been used for environmental justice purposes. Tell us about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to also respond to your earlier question, you know, our identities are, in, are interconnected. We cannot separate our race from our gender, from um, how we're being impacted by based on where we live. And so, um, you know, all of these issues for us are definitely interconnected and we have to address it in that way. So environmental justice, climate justice is a civil rights issue. And those laws that exist are there to protect us and we have to use those civil rights in order to protect our um, environmental rights. In the city of Los Angeles, we were able to sue the city of Los Angeles for their pattern and practice of siding oil drilling operations in low-income communities of color. And so we use um, you know, civil rights laws to continue to protect our communities that are impacted by the fossil fuel industry. Right, and so there's, you've actually noted that there was um, uh, the affluent areas. Tell us a little more about the affluent areas where there's, mm -hmm. there's uh, uh, oil wells that is, the, is very different in terms of the hours they operated, the amount of lighting, that sort of thing. Right, so in the community in which we organize in, in Wilmington, California, and the city of Los Angeles, you have oil drilling operations that operate 24 hours a day with um, trucks coming in at all hours of the night. You have exposed diesel rigs versus communities in more affluent parts of Los Angeles have um, electric rigs and they are fully enclosed and they have limited hours of operation. And so we need to challenge the way that permitting is happening and we continue to do that. But beyond that, we, we are pushing for, um, you know, the, a 2,500-foot buffer zone in the city of Los Angeles between sites of extracting oil and sensitive receptors such as where people live and where children play. Quite a start. And there's what, about 300 jobs at, at stake for that big change? Right, exactly. So when we're talking about just transition, if you have 
over half of the oil drilling sites in Los Angeles concentrated in a low-income communities of in community of color. There are currently within that situation 300 jobs at risk. And so this is the perfect opportunity for us to address the issue of just transition with this case to find the solution for these 300 jobs in order for us to move away from this harming industry right next to our communities. Kevin DeLeon, what's your idea of a just transition? It's a term that's used quite, it means, I don't know, different things to different people. What's your conception of a just transition? Well, a couple things. One is we clearly have to decarbonize our economy. We have no other choice. The scientists have already spoken loud and clear. This is a political issue. It's not a scientific issue. We have all the empirical evidence that clearly suggests that we're on a pathway uh, to um, a lot of bad stuff is going to happen. It's already happening right now in real time right in California. We have the droughts. We have extreme weather patterns. Uh, uh, we had a historic drought for five years, and we went from a historic drought for five years to a record amount of rainfall uh, in recorded history in California. So those are extreme weather patterns, and that's and, not a good thing. Houston thought. had three 500-year floods in three years in a row. Exactly. So we know it's happening right now in real time. So for me, we have no choice. We have to decarbonize our economy. So a just transition. For those folks who are working in the extractive you know, industries, uh, who are working in refineries, whether it's in Richmond, California, Martinez, Manisha, or down in Southern California, Torrance, or for that matter, any other place uh, in the country, in Texas and Houston, uh, which is the capital of, of refineries, um, we have to make sure that we can transition these folks to a clean energy economy, uh, making sure that their salaries, their wages, their benefits are commiserate with what they're actually you know, uh, receiving right now. For those who have been historically and socioeconomically marginalized for a whole variety of issues uh, due to ethnicity, due to immigration status, due to their zip code, uh, we have to make sure that we can provide uh, a, a, a good paying job uh, with good benefits in the clean energy space. And the one thing that we've done here in California is to date we have created 500,000 jobs in the clean energy space. Now, I want to put this in context because that is 10 times more jobs in the clean energy space in California than there are coal mining jobs in all of America. Not coal mining jobs, because we don't have coal in California, but we're talking about Virginia, or I should say West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, coal mining states, Wyoming. That is 10 times more jobs in California in the clean energy space than there are coal mining jobs in all of America. So the impact that you can have, not just in California, uh, but in, in poor rural states that historically uh, have been dependent for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, and I believe, this is my perspective, that the politicians who represent them at the local, state, and federal level have failed them quite dramatically, knowing that coal consumption domestically as well as internationally is going down. So they have been positioned and transitioned their constituents to a clean energy economy because it's a political situation, not a scientific or economic situation. So you want to make sure that regardless of your Latino, African-American, white, Asian-American, racially mixed, that especially if you're at the lowest economic strata, that that just transition allows you to have a good paying job to put a roof over your child's head, to pay for the clothes on their back and food on the table. At the same time, when you pay out of your pocket that energy bill, and whether it's through energy efficiency or whether it is through renewable energy, wind, solar, uh, whether it's distributed rooftop, whether it's utility scale, whether it's geothermal, or other technologies that will be created in, in the near horizon, that we can make sure that we democratize 
the benefits of our climate change policies to make sure that every single individual, again, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you come from, has access to the latest, the greatest, the most innovative and greenest technology. If we don't, then we'll continue to be a very polarized society where only those who have the highest educational attainment and the financial wherewithal to access that great and latest, the greatest and latest green technologies will be the only ones benefiting. So that means if you live in wealthy neighborhoods, whether it's in California or in the country, then you'll have an energy efficient home, you have rooftop storage, you'll have, I should say, energy storage, you have rooftop solar, you have a charging station, and you have an electric vehicle. But if a lot of folks don't have it, we'll never meet our macro target goal. So it's out of our own self-interest for our planet and for our own public health that we make sure that we, we have to have a just transition for everybody. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about how to bring everyone along on the road to a clean economy. Coming up, are the presidential candidates giving climate enough attention? I wish that we would hear more candidates that are that's actually saying this is their number one priority, that they're going to act without any hesitation on day one. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about making a just transition to clean energy for everyone. My guests are climate justice advocate Daryl Molina Sarmiento, former California State Senator Kevin DeLeon, and Vien Trong, senior advisor on climate for presidential candidate Tom Steyer. Trong is also a former director of Green for All, an organization founded by activist Van Jones that for years made job equality, and especially green jobs, a part of its mission. But the reality of green jobs hasn't matched the hype. What we, what we never promised is that it was going to get done in four years. <laughs> so let me say that the, the move towards a green new future is something that we have to continue to walk down the path of. And we don't really have a choice, right? We now know it's one of the biggest global national security problems that we are facing. Syria, it was a war fought over scarce resources. The rural communities were drying up and farmers had to go to the city center pushing more pressure on the lack of resources that was already happening in the city center. Now half the people that are at the borders being detained in the United States are there because of their work in agriculture in their home countries are no longer in existence. And they're forced here because of a lack of ability to survive and to care for their families. This is not an issue of whether or not we can transition. We have to. The climate is already changing, and we have to change along with it. We have to make sure that we're doing it in such a way that is bringing people along so that we're not leaving folks behind because there is no other choice. I will say that that forces us to think differently about this creation of a new economy. It is not just about creating jobs, which is important. And we have to make sure that we're thinking about the jobs and the industries that we're creating, make sure that they are sustainable and green and not gray, not killing people. We have to make sure that we're creating a workforce pipeline to prepare people for those jobs. And we have to make sure that we're treating people differently in this transition as well. 
And I think that's really important when we're looking at this global issue in a country that is diversifying very quickly, where half the people in this country will be majority minority by 2040, 2042 is the projections. And that should be a cause for us to think about how do we celebrate diversity? How do we turn to each other, not against each other? How do we make sure that we're actually looking at how do we work together to create that bright new future that can be possible? Because if we don't do it, what we saw in 2016 was a backlash against a future that looked increasingly exclusive. It was a backlash and a vote at the ballot box that said, we are scared of leaders and lawmakers painting a future for us without us. We are scared about a future that is excluding coal miners, excluding low-income communities, that is not inclusive of our future. And there was a backlash at the ballot box. And I think it is incumbent upon us all to realize not only the grave threat that is possible, but the grave new hope and possibility that is possible for us all if we do this right and well. And that is what we're hoping people can hear us and do kind of moving forward at the ballot box this election cycle. I want to talk about the, the Vien Trong. You're advising Tom Steyer, but look at the field of, of candidates uh, and, you know, put, put, put your boss aside in terms of, you know, climate we're seeing. Uh, it's, it's much more prominent than it has been in the past. Um, how do you see the field on climate? I wish I was seeing more on climate. When you look across the stage, you think about, you hear the facts about what's happening now around the real threat globally and domestically, and you hear about the real impacts to people's daily lives. You know, growing up in my community, one out of four kids have asthma. We have elders who have higher rates of heart disease and strokes, pollution-related illnesses. My kids are projected to live 12 years less because of the zip codes that they're growing up in. 12 years is the span of time from the time they're in kindergarten to the time they graduate high school. Imagine losing all of those years of your life. And you're hearing even worse in places that are losing generations of lives because of the poisoned water, because of the poisoned air. And then you look at the stage of Democratic candidates and you think about what are they prioritizing, if not the lives and livelihood of people, of our kids, what are they prioritizing? And I wish that we would hear more candidates that are that's actually saying this is their number one priority, mm -hmm. that they're going to act without any hesitation on day one. You think about what's happening in Flint, Michigan, 100,000 people who got poisoned, generations of wealth that got robbed, their entire homes now worth nothing. You think about the 4,000 people who are undocumented there that can't even go to the hospital. And you think if this is not a climate emergency that de demands our action on day one, what is? If this was done by Al-Qaeda, this would demand immediate action. Why aren't our presidential candidates that are proposing that they run the country? If you want to run the country, what else is more important than our lives and livelihoods? So I wish there was more people who would say this is their most important priority. There's only one candidate that has said he will. That's Tom Steyer. <laughs> And he was sitting here a while ago, and he would declare emergency on day one. And that's, that, that sets him apart from the others. Mm -hmm. Can I, I just want to add one thing, too. I, and I do agree with Vien. And I, I wish with the Democratic candidates right now, they're currently on stage right now, I, I don't really see a real strong command uh, on the policy issues. I, I do see we agree that climate change is a problem. It is a crisis. We need to do something about it. But I'm not really seeing a really true command 
on the policy, on the solutions, how you execute it, you know, and, and how you maneuver it, you know, from the executive branch, whether they're executive orders, uh, or if you're gonna try to do it statutorily, you know, uh, uh, through uh, the Congress. And obviously, if Mitch McConnell continues to c control the US Senate, then you're gonna have to figure out how you do an executive order that's gonna be as litigation proof as possible with a, a packed, you know, Trump court system at, at the federal court, at the appellate, and now at the US Supreme Court. I just wish there was a stronger command on this issue. And I do want to say too that organizations that are doing community organizing on the ground are not only watching the presidential election, we're looking at our local city councils. We're looking at what's happening at the statewide level mm -hmm. and our representatives at all, at all of these bodies, including those that are being appointed by elected officials, because each of these decision-making bodies are impacting our communities on the ground, they are making the decisions that impact us, that are um, making decisions around permitting, around fossil fuel industry expansion. And so for us as organizations, we are trying to push for accountability around our decision makers, accountability to stay strong around um, influence from fossil fuel industry money, to stay strong around, um, you know, push back around labor when we want to take take strong climate and environmental justice stances. And so it's really important for us. We, we send questionnaires to all of our candidates at the city council, at the LA County Board of Supervisors, at the Contra Costa County Board, at the Alameda County, all of these um, state and um, federal and government agencies that impact the decisions of people on a daily basis. They need to know that we are organizations, we are communities that are watching them, uh, that know the decisions that they are voting on and make decisions on endorsement based on where they stand around issues such as climate and environmental justice. So a lot of this work is really happening on the ground. Yeah, particularly with not much happening federally. Most of the real, real uh, action is happening at mm -hmm. cities and local level. If you're just joining us, we're talking about a just transition from fossil fuels to cleaner energy. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are Kevin DeLeon, former president pro tem of the California State right. Senate, mm -hmm. currently a candidate for the Los Angeles City Council. Daryl Molina Sarmiento, executive director of Communities for a Better Environment, an advocacy group based in Los Angeles, and Vien Trung, former director of Green for All and uh, senior advisor for the climate justice for presidential candidate Tom Steyer. Kevin DeLeon, uh, I interviewed Coral Davenport recently, a uh, New York Times reporter in Washington, D.C., and she said the Green New Deal is alive as a rallying cry for activists. It is dead as a matter of legislation. What is the National Green Deal to you? Well, listen, that's a, a very good question. It, it's been up for debate with a lot of folks because they still don't know what the New Green Deal is, legislatively speaking. It hasn't been introduced. It's a resolution. I think a one-page or two-page resolution. Um, I've been very clear that in California, we've already actually started the, the New Green Deal, the Green New Deal, and actually it's, it's being implemented and executed. I, I will give them a, a tremendous amount of credit uh, with regards to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez with s sparking and, and elevating uh, this discussion, even if it's a political discussion. Uh, but legislatively, there is no legislation. There is no committee hearings. Nope. Nothing's been moved. There's no language at all whatsoever that specifies specifically if we're going to decarbonize the grid, you know, uh, it, what are we doing with regards to energy efficiency, electric vehicles, and so forth. You know, there, there are more sort of broad brush, you know, aspirations. But that being said, 
at a political level, uh, I'll give him a tremendous amount of credit for elevating this, you know, in, in sparking this discussion, which is most needed, uh, having this provocative discussion. Bin Trung, is the Green New Deal kind of too ambitious, you know, includes a, a job guarantee, includes, you know, gets at some wealth distribution, some things that make even Democrats uncomfortable? Do you welcome that ambition, or do you worry that that ambition might be a bridge too far and hurt the Democrats in, uh, in the election? You know, for too long, our country and our lawmakers have lacked a clear vision and ambition for our country. So having a clear North Star where people are rallying towards is a welcomed thing. But we have to remind ourselves that the original New Deal was never passed in one piece of legislation. Mm -hmm. And the Green New Deal wouldn't be either. It would be done in waves. And we should be able to look at what is... What are all of these waves of legislation going to move us towards? And I love the idea of making sure that we're not leaving people behind in this transition to a green new economy. Kevin DeLeon, uh, you know, labor unions are often on the side of more pipelines, more fossil fuel infrastructure. There's jobs there, uh, whether their jobs happen to be building more you know, fossil infrastructure or green infrastructure. Sometimes those big, huge uh, fossil infrastructure projects are a lot of jobs. Yeah, but I think increasingly um, we have labor unions uh, in the building trades in particular that are moving towards uh, the uh, green energy economy. Um, IBW uh, in particular, for example, here in California. Because they want to electrical, electrify everything. Yeah, so, you know, obviously their goal and agenda is to electrify transportation electrification, how we move from tailpipe emitters, which is 40% of greenhouse gas emissions in California, and how we electrify the transportation system so we have charging stations that are ubiquitous just like gas stations are. And uh, there are some uh, uh, building trades unions, without a doubt, who, who, who represent their members and represent their members well, who are making uh, six uh, figure salaries, you know, defined benefit pension plan and, 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 and good health care. And what you don't want to do is that just transition and say, we're going to transition you from working at this oil refinery plant, you know, uh, all of a sudden you're doing rooftop distributed generation uh, installation and you're making $15 an hour minimum wage and no health care, no defined benefit. So it's a little more complicated, but we have to really, really think this out. And, and, and I can say, to me, it's not just about energy efficiency and reducing your energy load. And what are you dealing with? Double pane windows, window fenestration, lighting, sensor lighting, insulation. You're talking about an economic stimulus package that grows your economy because these are jobs that can't be outsourced to Mexico or, or offshore to Guangzhou, China, because they're labor intensive. It must be done physically on site. So when I think about climate policies, I don't think about climate policies in a vacuum, but I think about climate policies in a huge economic policy package. You know, it's, it's, we've got to stop, you know, you know we're, we're waiting for the silver bullet or the panacea from some economists from Stanford or MIT or Cal or UCLA or University of Chicago or Harvard, Yale. Stop that. This is our economics package. We're going to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions as well as other criteria pollutants that pollute our children's lungs. And we're going to grow this economy at the same time by, you know, taking folks out of their cars, tailpipe emitters into uh, uh, electric vehicles and, and to be agnostic with other, you know, whether it's hydrogen fuel cells. And that's how you grow an economy. And that's an inclusive economy. And that's how you get labor unions, you know, on board, too. They have to see something that's real and a transition and a pathway for that conversion, you know. And I think that uh, it is it's going to be exciting for me to, to persuade folks to move on to this side. But it's doable and it's within reach. I mean, listen, folks, 
defended the typewriter, and they had something called the computer, and that's wild, that's crazy, we don't know what that is. We got something that's real, that's tangible, we make it, it's American made, but we made the transition. This is gonna happen, because the market forces would be much too powerful. You're listening to a conversation about building a pathway to a just and sustainable energy future. This is Climate One. Coming up, taking the clean air battle to the streets. 40% of the emitters are tailpipe emissions, trucks and personal vehicles. That is going to be the next battlefront. And it's going to take a lot of courage and conviction because that is a frontal battle with the fossil fuel industry now and their business model. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One records many of our conversations with a live audience at our modern and green new home on the waterfront in San Francisco. When you're in town, come check us out. Our programs are open to the public and listed on climateone.org. Today we're talking about climate justice in a green economy with Daryl Molina Sarmiento, Executive Director of Communities for a Better Environment, Vien Trong, a climate advisor to presidential candidate Tom Steyer, and Kevin DeLeon, former president of the California State Senate. In less than a decade, Los Angeles will host the 2028 Summer Olympics. Plans for upgrading the city's infrastructure are already underway. There's a brand new downtown sports park in the works, along with athlete accommodations, visitor attractions, and improvements to mass transit. Is this an opportunity for sustainable building or just another excuse for greenwashing? I think it's very exciting that the Olympics are coming. Um, I, I, I don't care that much about the Olympics coming um, because when the cameras are shut off and when folks go back to their own native countries, you know, and people sweep off the confetti, what I'm excited about is not so much the gains, but all the infrastructure that will be laid out uh, in perpetuity for generations to come that children, particularly young people, will be able to benefit from. So that means charging stations that are ubiquitous throughout Southern California. That means uh, dedicated you know, electric uh, uh, bus uh, lines uh, that will that are synchronized with, with lights that can move quickly because you know I, li- I like the light rail, but I just don't think light rail is cool enough to change behaviors because when they're at grade, they're competing with cars because they're stopping at the lights. And if it's a very expensive uh, piece of metal to pay for, and that's why folks say, that's not going to change my behavior. I'm going to still drive a car. And that's why you know laying out that infrastructure uh, uh, is, to me, is, is incredibly exciting. And why Southern California, specifically L.A.? Because L.A. is the epicenter nationwide, 10 years consecutively, the most polluted city in America. And for anyone who's from Southern California, and there was a lot of folks in the Bay Area from Southern California who grew up in Southern California, you remember those, those, uh, uh, the, the, the smog alerts when they wouldn't even allow children to go out into the playground. That's a thing of the past. The air quality has improved quite dramatically with more cars on the road, with even more people. But we're not where we need to be. And that's why, for example, in my district, I have nine major freeways. I don't have like the 280 and the 101. <laughs> I mean, I, that would be a godsend. I have, I have the two, the five, the 10, the 60 freeway, the famous Hollywood 101 freeway that comes right up here. You know, I have the 134, uh, the uh, 210 freeway, and the 710 freeway. 
all those major freeways that crisscross the district like a serpent that chokes the air, the oxygen out of a young girl's lungs. And the number one reason for absenteeism in our public school system is due to asthma. Mm -hmm. It's due to asthma. And that is from the tailpipe, you have carbon dioxide, which is atmospheric, which creates the, the extreme weather patterns, climate, and you have the criteria pollutants. You have NOx, SOx, particular matter 2.5, and that's what damages permanently, you know, uh, particularly our, our senior citizens, but especially young boys and girls who are growing up, their, young, their lungs never develop. So uh, aside from economics issue, uh, 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 our planet issue, it is a major, major public health issue. And by the way, pollution kills prematurely thousands of people in California, but especially in Southern California and the Central Valley. That's why we have to give it the urgency that it deserves because somehow, some way, you know, it's like a slow death. If it was some sort of virus of influenza, mm -hmm. there would be, the CDC would be all over this, but because it's climate and criteria pollutants and tailpipe, it's a political issue. And there's not the political will or the leadership that exists in Washington, D.C. And that's why you made a very good point, you know, Greg. It is local and it's subnationals that are going to lead the way, regardless of who occupies the White House today, and even if it's a, a president, a Democratic president in the near future. As long as uh, uh, um, uh, uh, McConnell is in the U.S. Senate, it's going to be very difficult still to move things statutorily. So they're going to have to be creative how they move things executive order. If not, that's okay. It is the subnational governments that are going to lead the way. And as California has become the largest economy on the planet to dedicate itself legally to 100% clean renewable energy, you have other states like Jay Ensley in Washington, Michelle uh, 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 Lujan Grisham in New Mexico, and they're going to follow California's lead. And uh, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti is the new head of an organization called C40, which is the 40 largest, you know, emitting cities around the country, around the world, trying to move on on climate. Uh, Vien Trong, uh, cars are the problem story in climate in, in this country and in, in, in California. That gets to housing. Uh, a lot of communities don't want new housing, even if it's near transit. Uh, we have a housing shortage in, in California and as many cities in the country. Housing is not often seen as a, as a climate or environmental issue, but it very much is. We've had more housing near transit. Maybe it wouldn't be so many freeways in Kevin's district. How to get at housing? Well, we have to build more housing for people who, across the board, across all income levels, it's because of the lack of supply um, that is increasing the cost of demand. And across California, but not only here in our state, in Washington, Oregon, and a number of other states, New York and other places, we're seeing increased homelessness. We're seeing people who are living in tents. Um, and it's because we're seeing a drive towards the little demand, the little um, availability of housing in California and in other places. So we have to build more, and we have to build more across um, all income levels. And we have to make sure that they're built um, in green and sustainable ways. We want to decarbonize the energy that's going there. We want to build more housing close to where people live, eat, work, and play, so that we have less um, less pollution coming out of tailpipes from cars that are going back and forth to work into places where people have to go. So definitely many ways to get to the housing issue. Dara Molina Sarmiento, uh, Los Angeles has a fairly positive story of building light rail. Kevin says it's expensive, but there's more transit options in Los Angeles than there used to be. But with transit comes housing development, which comes displacement. Mm -hmm. So how can there be housing without displacement? 
I think um, with, in just in all issues, especially around climate policy, we, we want to ensure that the communities that are being impacted first and worst, low-income communities of color and indigenous communities, folks that are, have the ability to stay in the communities that they live in. And so um, to make sure that they are not being pushed out when we finally are at a place where we are able to bring in green space, we're able to bring in public transportation, but then the housing cost of housing has risen and so now we're unable to stay in our communities or when we think about um, how we're being impacted by climate change and climate resiliency and our and an adaptation, do we have the ability to continue to stay in our communities after we experience huge climate catastrophe? So there's a lot of issues as it relates to housing and um, a lot of issues as it relates to protecting um, homeowners, renters, and folks to stay in the communities in which they're trying to protect and have their families thrive. Kevin DeLeon, oil drilling in California is actually increasing yeah. under, under Governor Newsom. Uh, how do you rate Governor Newsom as a, as a climate leader? And uh, is, is the state going in the wrong direction? There's actually, after a dip, maybe this was a market cycle, but oil approval, permit approvals and drilling is up in California. I think when our, our, our greenhouse gas emissions are, are millions of metric tons of CO2 equivalent uh, drop dramatically, the economic recession played a huge role in energy labor-intensive industries in California. Um, there is a huge concern that uh, uh, oil consumption has increased dramatically uh, due to, to, to more cars uh, on, on, on our, our roads and freeways. Um, I, I do think that Governor uh, Gavin Newsom is, is, is doing a, 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 a very good job. It's his first year you know, as governor, as chief executive of the fifth largest economy uh, on the planet. Uh, he's just uh, announced in his budget a $4 billion you know, a bond, a green bond you know, to, to, to really invest in, in technologies and uh, deal with inequities, particularly in, in hard-hit uh, uh, areas such as the Central Valley. Um, so I, I give him a lot of credit. I, I will say this, and this has nothing to do with, with Governor uh, Gavin Newsom, but the current regime of, 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 of cap-and-trade. I've, I've never been a fan of, of, of cap-and-trade putting a price uh, a, a market price on carbon because I think that uh, polluters continue to pay to pollute. I think we have the scientific evidence that clearly suggests that uh, quantifiably that we have not reduced the carbon dioxide emissions from the cap and trade uh, uh, regulations and that we're going to have to continue to move forward decarbonizing our grid energy efficiency by reducing energy load. But let me get back. 40% of the emitters are tailpipe emissions, trucks, you know, uh, uh, and, and personal vehicles. That is going to be the next battlefront. And it's going to take a lot of courage and conviction because that is a frontal battle with the fossil fuel industry now and their business model and the way it works. It's not a tangential, indirect sort of dynamic between, you know, investor-owned utilities and municipally-owned utilities, but this is now a direct, you know, battle. Vian Trong, uh, you're working for, for Tom Steyer. Uh, philanthropy plays an important part in, um, in supporting climate policy, supporting uh, organizations. Does it concern you that climate philanthropy is really dominated by white male billionaires? Tom Steyer, Michael Bloomberg, Simon's family. Does that have an undue influence on, on climate justice issues, on, on the, where that philanthropy goes? There are research that shows that a lot of philanthropy goes to large established organizations because they're safe bets. 
Well, it bothers me that we're not seeing more people investing into communities and into making sure we're rebuilding um, into the communities that have been underserved and neglected for so long. We need to actually have a wealth tax and we need to actually force and require us to invest more. And for me, across the board, we need to see more diversity in what we're giving to. We need to make sure that the people who have been underserved, the people who are at the front lines of climate change and the climate problems are actually at the front lines, too, of problem solving and deciding what are the needs and priorities of the very communities. Um, California has actually set a model in Cal uh, called the Transformative Climate Communities that looks at how do we invest in stakeholders like community-based organizations, local leaders, um, uh, businesses from the local communities, labor unions coming together to actually create what is the vision and need for our specific communities. Even in California, there's very diverse communities from rural to urban to suburban where we're seeing a large growth of poverty these days. And how do we make sure that we're funding them to actually do the work they need to do to set their vision for their future? And then they are eligible for an implementation grant. And there you can see not only the public money, but also philanthropic money and a capital stack of community development, financial institutions, market rate funds, and others coming together to support the community vision moving forward. So I think philanthropy can be better. I think philanthropy has to get credit for what it's done. We want to see much more. We want to see the, the giving to be much more diverse. We want to see there to be a fundamental premise and value that drives it all, which is how can we support the very communities that have been underserved and neglected for so long to be the front lines of problem solving, to be the front lines of deciding what the vision is for their future, and not only in the coastal areas, but also in the middle of America. How do we make sure that we're investing in them so that it is leading us forward? We're going to go to our audience questions for Kevin DeLeon, Daryl Merlina Sarmiento, and Van Trong. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you, Greg. Dave Masson, Citizens Climate Lobby. Senator DeLeon, you touched on the good middle-class jobs that refinery workers have, uh, which is due to their unions, uh, and how in the clean energy transition, uh, we don't want to just eliminate their jobs and force them into, say, rooftop solar, which is uh, not union, not family supporting. Do you have more specific thoughts about how to assist those refinery workers and others like them in the just transition? Yeah, I, I think that w w as, as we move towards decarbonizing the grid, and obviously those are our are, are, are transportation lines and the electrons that we move to power, you know, our businesses and our homes, uh, utility-scale solar uh, it has uh, a lot of uh, 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 employment. Um, I was with the building trades, uh, the president of building trades of California, uh, Robbie Hunter, uh, a good, you know, Irishman with a heavy Irish brogue, you know, and and I always need a translator, you know, when I speak with them, you know. Um, but he pulled out these reams of of, of, of data points of folks who were in pr apprenticeship programs and were be becoming part of the unions and getting jobs in utility scale solar, and um, it, it was very surprising. It was Martinez and Sanchez, you know, and, and Ching, you know, and mm. in, in in a lot of areas, you know, that. Uh, are socioeconomically uh, uh, not well-to-do in comparison to the Bay Area and in, in, in Los Angeles, Orange County, San Diego. So I do believe in the utility scale. Uh, I do believe that as we move towards, you know, electrifying our transportation system, um, I'll give you an example. Uh, in Lancaster, California, which is a very poor neighbor city in northern um, uh, county of Los Angeles, uh, there's a plant there called BYD, mm -hmm. um, and BYD is, is a Chinese company, uh, but there's 1,000 jobs I've been created, all union jobs, 
and they were created because of the policies that California created, and they wanted to be closer to their market. What they do is they, they, they don't manufacture. They manufacture in, in China, but they assemble uh, at the plant in Lancaster union jobs. They assemble double-decker electric buses, which they, they uh, uh, export to the U.K., uh, and the, uh, um, the, the UPS uh, electric, not CNG, but electric, you know, UPS vans, and, and everything's electric there. So uh, to me, that's the future. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Hi, my name is Jackie Garcia. My question is for Daryl. Mm -hmm. uh, Daryl, I'm wondering if you can tell us how the cap and trade has um, directly impacted frontline communities, mm -hmm. and if you see any um, litigation in the future, you talked about, for instance, um, using civil rights legislation to regain local control um, to protect communities from pollution. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, so CBE, we organize in Richmond, California, here in the Bay Area, and in Wilmington, California, in the city of Los Angeles. And these are two cities on the West Coast that have the largest oil refining centers. And, um, and that is the case with these large fossil fuel emitters, is that they are concentrated in, disproportionately concentrated in low-income communities of color, such as Richmond, such as Wilmington. And so with the cap-and-trade program, we actually saw an increase in emissions. We actually saw an increase in adverse health impacts as a result of those increased emissions, not just of greenhouse gases, but of the co-pollutants that are the ones that actually impact our health lead to increase in asthma, respiratory health, um, cancer, and a host of other, um, other health impacts. And so um, we are not achieving our greenhouse gas reduction goals through this program of cap and trade. In fact, we are creating toxic hotspots of communities. And so um, we want to ensure that reductions are seen at the source, that we are working towards a decommissioning of oil refineries rather than the expansion of oil refineries, which is what we're experiencing right now, the expansion of refineries such as Phillips 66 right here in Rodeo, Crockett, um, Contra Costa County area, the expansion of oil refineries in Southern California, um, the Tesoro oil refinery, the expansion of freeways such as the 710 freeway in Southern California, um, uh, unprecedented permitting of oil drilling all across the state of California. So we're actually experiencing on the ground increase in fossil fuel infrastructure, locking us in into decades of, um, of being uh, of being polluted by, by this type of economy. And so we're really working towards um, that just transition. And we have to start now because our economies are so dependent on the extractive economy. When you have a town like Richmond, when you have a town like Wilmington, we need to assess how much of our tax revenue for, from our cities is coming from the oil industry and how are you going to replace it. And it's more than just um, an economic replacement. It's really, really looking at um, all of our communities as a whole, moving away from extraction towards um, an economy that is ecologically sustainable, that is democratically controlled. You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about what a just transition to a green economy looks like. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests were Daryl Molina Sarmiento, Executive Director of Communities for a Better Environment, Kevin DeLeon, former President of the California State Senate, and Vien Trong, principal at Trong & Associates and a climate advisor to presidential candidate Tom Steyer. 
To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Justin Norton. Our reporter is Andrew Stelzer. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.